Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. The handle broke off a brand new, very expensive leather briefcase. And when it hit the ground, the zipper broke and my computer flew and my papers flew. And I'm trying to get on an early flight to get home on a Friday night. And I got ticked off and gathered my stuff up, went home and... I was telling a friend about it, and they said, well, go to Duluth Pack. They built the greatest stuff ever. It's guaranteed for life, and you need to go get one of those with all the travel you do. I bought the briefcase that's right behind me that I use to this day. 30 years ago this year, it'll be. And I was like, this stuff is great. It's the best-kept secret out there. Nobody knows about this place, and it's right here in Duluth. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Made in the USA since 1882, Duluth Pack is known for its canvas bags and its lifetime warranties. Like many American heritage brands, it is beloved by both outdoor enthusiasts who appreciate the quality and urban hipsters who love the look, the story, and yes, the quality too. Tom Sega, a Duluth native, fell in love with all of the above, so much so that he spent four years trying to convince Duluth Pack's owners to sell the brand to him, which they did in 2007. Yep, just a year before a massive recession. Tom set about reinvigorating this storied brand while staying true to its roots. In 2017, he did it again, buying another Duluth brand that had fallen on hard times. Spring Creek Manufacturing makes canoe paddles, mounts, and an ever-expanding array of products. It takes a high tolerance for risk to come into a long-standing business that's struggling and say, I can do this better. But that's exactly what Tom has done. It's funny how entrepreneurship has brought him full circle, producing some of the products he needs to get out on his beloved Lake Superior, which is where he daydreamed about being when he was stuck in school as a kid. I was very lucky. I graduated from Duluth East High School at Duluth East overlooked Lake Superior. So a person like me, I spent most of my time staring out the window at the lake daydreaming and, and uh, you know, owning business. Yeah, that really never came into mind. I had always thought, well, I'm going to go be a DNR agent or do something in the outdoors because I was, I was such an outdoors person. You know, my first passion would have been to be a veterinarian. And it took me about uh, 25 minutes in college to figure out, well, I wasn't going to cut the grades to, to be a veterinarian. And, uh, and so, you know, I had to start doing some thinking on what do I really want to do? And, and I've always been, uh, from a business standpoint, an extroverted person, you know, and, and just, uh, I like relationships. I like getting to know people. And I knew that sales was probably going to be somewhere in my future. And so I really looked that way. So I went to college really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, ended up with an engineering degree of all things and knew that sales was going to be it, but I wanted to get into something technical. And that's how I ended up my, with my first career in sales and then transitioning into the pulp and paper industry on the supply side. I was in sales and marketing capacities, um, but in very technical fields and, and did really well because of that, because I love to travel. I love to be around the people. I love to build relationships. And, you know, it doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what business you're in, Allie. We're all in the relationship business. Mm -hmm. And that is one of my strengths. And you might as well play to your strengths. And that is let's build good, honest, trusting relationships with people and other things will take care of themselves. But it all starts with that. And it starts with a lot of hard work to build those and build that trust. Did you ever think to yourself, you know, I want to start my own company or, I mean, what, what was the goal if, you know, in those earlier days, what did you see as, you know, I'll know I've arrived when? You know, there wasn't an aha moment. What, what happened is I actually had children. And so um, I'm working away. My wife had a great job and, and we had children and we decided that 
you know, one of us was going to be a stay home parent and, and raise the kids. And it wasn't going to be me. Um, we wanted our kids to be normal, uh, you know, kids. And, and if, if I was a stay home dad, um, it probably would not have turned out quite so well. Come on. Um, and so as we did that and she gave up her career to take on what I always call the most important career there is, and that's mom. Um, and, and it's like, okay, we need to supplement income somehow. How in the heck can we do this? And when our first was born, I bought an income property. And said, well, okay, this will be great. We can make some money off it, you know, a little bit of work here and there on weekends. And then, you know, when she goes to college, we can either, you know, take out a loan on it or we could sell it. Got college taken care of. And then um, I call it an illness. It was kind of fun. And so then I bought another and another and another and another and another and another. And I just didn't know how to stop. It was like, I was like a game. It was fun. And we ended up with a large portfolio of income properties. Okay, wait, back, back up one second. When you say income properties, first of all, were you buying residential? Were you buying apartment buildings, houses? Yes. What were you buying? I was buying anything from single family houses to duplexes to fourplexes to the biggest building I had was 28 units. And in, up in the Duluth area? Yeah, absolutely. And it was it, it taught me to be really creative because I had no money. And so I was going up to people and putting in bids on houses and they're saying, well, how much do you have to put down? And it's like, I don't have any money. And so literally I was buying houses on contract for deeds. I was buying, I mean, I had one building that I had six different mortgages on it. Um, and it just taught me from the ground up how to, how do you negotiate, how you do business, how you actually make, you know, a P&L statement, how you look at, at the finances of a business in a very microcosm and then just kept building it bigger, bigger and bigger um, and just said, gosh, you know, this is kind of a, a good thing. And it, it became a point where it's like, okay, this is going to be kind of a big monster. And I, and then I had staff and I was trying to do it while I was traveling. And Do I do that full time or, you know, do I give up my career and just do that full time and go bigger yet? Um, and it, it just became uh, uh, another business that taught me so much more than I, I could have ever thought it would teach me. And I didn't do it on purpose. And you were doing it on the side. You still had your day job in sales. Yeah, it was a side hustle. Let me tell you, it was uh, it was a lot of work. It was every night that I was home, I was at those apartments every weekend, Saturdays and Sundays. I was working like crazy because otherwise you couldn't, you know, you could not make the the, the numbers work and, and, and you know, turn a profit and, and make them so that you could you could then reinvest into another one and, and sure. whatnot. So, um, so yeah, it was a heck of a lot of work, but it was a side hustle. You have to have a high tolerance for risk to be able to do that, especially when you don't have a lot of extra cash laying around. Um, I, it, it may be just being naive um, in the beginning that it was like, yeah, what's the worst thing that happens? They take it back, you know, because I was doing a lot of contract for deeds. And the very worst thing that happened was I put some money into it. I paid down some of the debt service and the thing went south. And, and, uh, and then, you know, unfortunately, I had to give it back to, to the people that I bought it from. But I'm, I'm a person who it's like I refuse to fail. I'm going to work, you know, night and day. And I absolutely refuse to fail. And that's what I did. And, and just and then all of a sudden it became almost a game. I was putting in bids on apartments and, and uh, houses and things like every weekend and and did you ever wife, fail did did you did you ever we have... never no we we had struggles trust me there was there'd be you know building abc were being funded by buildings you know def uh -huh. um but as a as a company and then we formed uh, a company with it um no it actually became very profitable and we paid down debt service and I did a lot of sweat equity, which brought the the value of the buildings up, and and it just taught me so much on really what equity is and what cash flow is, and how to put a budget together, and what does a P and L statement really mean, and how do you get this ready for taxes, and you know how do you deal with accountants and attorneys and all those things, you know, literally starting really small, just kind of building it bigger and bigger, mm -hmm. and and um, just learning as you go, and. You know, if I had a if I had a dime for every dollar I lost along the way, I'd probably be retired. <laughs> so did you eventually decide to leave the day job in sales to focus on this real estate portfolio that you were building? I did not. Um, it's, it's kind of a weird transition. But 
during when I was in the pulp and paper industry, I was traveling 25 to 30 weeks a year. And I was what you absolutely call a road warrior. And nothing would last, whether it was a briefcase or whether it was a rolling luggage or a you know shaving kit or whatever it was, a backpack that you traveled with, nothing would last. I was spending a ton of money on this stuff. And there was just a lot of junk out there. I mean, let's just call it what it is, a lot of really expensive junk. Yeah. And I had an experience in the old, old Detroit airport. You're probably way too young for that. <laughs> uh, where I was trying to catch an early flight on a Friday night. It's kind of an interesting story. And this is kind of the Duluth pack story uh, where it all started. And uh, the handle broke off a brand new, very expensive leather briefcase. And when it hit the ground, the zipper broke and my computer flew oh. and my papers flew. And I'm trying to get on an early flight to get home on a Friday night. And I got ticked off and gathered my stuff up, went home and I was telling a friend about it and they said, well, go to Duluth Pack. They built the greatest stuff ever. It's guaranteed for life. And you need to go get one of those with all the travel you do. I bought the briefcase that's right behind me that I use to this day, 20, 30 years ago this year. It'll You're be. kidding. No. And, uh, and I was like, this stuff is great. This is the best kept secret out there. Nobody mm -hmm. knows about this place and it's right here in Duluth. But they build really good stuff and they put a lifetime guarantee in it. What are they, nuts? You know, and, and so I bought that, and then I'm an avid outdoors purchaser. I bought some gun cases, and I bought some shooting bags, and then my kids were young at the time, and I bought them backpacks for school, and it was hilarious because I brought them to the Duluth Pack store, and I said, pick your color wisely because you're going to wear it for a long time, and they looked really stupid because I bought them the largest one they had because I said, eventually, you'll grow into it because I'm spending <laughs> a lot of money. My kids are 30 and 28. And they still use the same backpacks they got in fourth and second grade. That's amazing. <laughs> and so this thing, it just became this animal onto itself. And, and I was like, gosh, this company builds great stuff, but nobody knows about them. And son of a gun, I know, I know somebody with a big mouth, me. And I'll go to the tallest mountain and yell and scream about it all day. So one day I approached him at a trade show and I said, you guys want to sell your company? And they were like, get out of here. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. And the guy gave me his, you know, his business card. And I gave him a call a couple of weeks later and then a couple of months later and a couple of months and a couple of months. And it took four years. And finally I got to the right guys um, that were from out of state. And they're like, why do you want this thing? And I said, can I be frank? And they said, sure. And I said, I don't think you have a clue what you have. I think you got a diamond in the rough here. And it wasn't performing well. They were actually looking for new leadership. And uh, they said, where have you been? And they said, trying to get a hold of you. And, and so we met. And uh, in our first meeting, we met for breakfast. And over dinner that night, we had put together a deal for me to come in as the operating partner of the, of the company. And I left a career that was absolutely a fabulous career pushed all chips in, ended up selling all of my uh, income properties to, to fund my purchase and never looked back. And wow. you know, it came in probably with a little bit of rose-colored glasses, Allie, because it was in a lot more difficult situation, the company, uh, than I thought it was. And it's one of those things, you refuse to fail, you roll up your sleeves, you take your clocks, throw them in the garbage because clocks don't matter anymore. And you do what you got to do. And uh, we went through some very difficult years early on in 2007, 8, and 9. Well, those were difficult years for a lot of companies. But but let's go even further back. Let's tell talk a little bit about this amazing brand, about Duluth Pack. This is 140 years old, this company? We actually, we are this year. Uh, December 12th is our official uh, birthday, but this whole year we're celebrating our 140th year in business. Amazing. Um, Can you give us yeah. a crash course on the, the origins of Duluth Pack? I will. And it's a pretty exciting story. So usually it's like, oh boy, we're going to put people to sleep now. But it's actually a really cool story. And that's one of the things we have here. You know, just a couple of things to preface 140 year old Minnesota Duluth company. Mm -hmm. We are actually older than the official city of Duluth. It was a township at the time. Wow. We're older than sliced bread. We're older than penicillin. <laughs> We're older than the automobile. We've survived two world wars, the Great Depression, the Great Recession, a lot of the COVID, 
Um, we, we've survived a heck of a lot. Yellow fever. I mean, crazy stuff that you think about. It's like, well, that was a long time ago. Yeah, it's because we are here. But here's how it was founded, Ali, is there's a gentleman named Camille Toyer, who's a French-Canadian, and he did some research. And back in the 1870s, he was like, all right, I need to, he's a bootmaker. And he goes, I got to find where industry's really thriving out there. And he did some research and definitely wasn't Google at the time. And he, he found that Duluth, Minnesota per capita was the single wealthiest city in the United States of America. You're kidding. Now, for most people, they give a look exactly like you just, a very <laughs> puzzled look on their face. And here's why. And if you think about it, number one, we have the iron mines up here, and they were just all firing up. All of the owners and the magnets from those iron mines, where did they live? Duluth, Minnesota. Hmm. And we had all this massive timber industry in northern Minnesota. Where did all the owners and magnets from those big, massive companies live? Duluth, Minnesota. And you had to get both of those, those products to Duluth somehow. And so you had all the rail companies coming and putting in rail from the Iron Range in northern Minnesota down to Duluth so they could then ship their product, lumber and iron ore. And guess what? All the owners of those companies and the, and the senior managers lived in Duluth. And oh, by the way, we are the farthest westerly, largest inland port in the United States of America. And that's how they were going to transport all their goods. So all the owners and magnets from all the shipping companies and, and the ports were in Duluth. So if you think of that, there was a lot of senior management business owners for large corporations living in Duluth. Hmm. And, per, and it was a very small town, but per capita had a lot of money because of those four reasons. Okay. So he came to Duluth and he opened up a boot shop because this is all industry, heavy industry. They needed leather boots. Here's how he came. He went to New York from Montreal. He made it on train to Minneapolis. He made it from stagecoach to somewhere around the Hinkley area where the road ended and walked the rest of the way to Duluth with all this stuff. Come on. Seriously. And then this guy also had a bum leg because he had hit it with an axe heating his house. And so he limped terribly and, uh, and walked to Duluth. He was, he was a serial entrepreneur. This guy, I would have loved to have had a conversation with him. Crazy impressive hard worker. So he opens his boot shop. His first boot shop, because they heated with wood back then, burned down. So what's he doing? He goes across the street, builds a new one. Guess what happens? Heating with wood, burned her down. Mm -hmm. Rebuilt it. In the winter, his boot business was a little slow because some of the industry was not as, as prevalent in the winter months. So what did he do? He bought a donkey and a big old barrel and made a trailer out of it. Go down to Lake Superior. There's no running water in Duluth in the 1870s. He'd scoop water in it. He'd follow his donkey around, go house to house, and sell water. Hmm. Talk about talk about an entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, this guy was selling water. So, so people, when did he start were, making bags? So, in uh, in the in 1882, he was commissioned by I don't know. We're not sure if it was the Forest Service or the the uh, rail companies to make a bag so that the engineers who had to go out, the civil engineers that had to go out and figure out where they were going to put all the rail lines and put in new roads and all this, they were going to be out for weeks and weeks. He was commissioned to make a bag where they could put all their stuff in it and they could go for weeks. And so he made the initial, what we now today call the number two pack, but the initial Duluth pack, which had the tump line on it, which that's what the patent was around so that you could the tump line goes on your right up about your hairline where it helps roll your shoulders forward when you're carrying a very heavy load on your back. And so the backpack was more comfortable. It wasn't injuring their backs while they were out doing their engineering work Got out it. in the field. And it and was so made of was called, canvas? It was made of, I mean, the same kind of material that you use today? It is. Um, it was made out of cotton duck canvas. Uh, leather straps, just like we do today. The top line looked just like one of our canoe packs. Is really the inception of the initial and original uh, Duluth pack. So because he put that top line on it, the line that goes on the, the uh, forehead or actually a little bit farther back on your hairline, he patented that. And that's why there's a patent from December 12, 1882. Hmm. And he promoted it as the 
bag with the little brass tag. And he actually put a brass tag right on one of the straps of every single bag. So we know if they're actual uh, original Camille Poyer made bags. And we have a few of them um, that they were originals that are pre-1911. Uh, Amazing. The, 19, the 1911 story is interesting because that's when he sold his pack business. He kept going as a, as a cobbler, as a bootmaker. But he sold his pack business in 1911 to five brothers, the Alveson brothers, who owned a company named Duluth Tent and Awning Company. And they made big canvas tents for, for people to go out camping and, and whatnot. And then also awnings on all these beautiful old mansions all over Duluth that all these wealthy people lived in. They put all the awnings on their homes. Okay. And they had a thriving business and they bought this pack business. And then they started making bags for companies like Orvis, mm. um, Abercrombie and Fitch, because Abercrombie and Fitch at one time was a, was the biggest outdoor company in the country, mm-hmm. and they made bags for them. So they, it just kind of built from there, and away it went. And and did those brothers? How long did they own it? I mean, who who bought it from them? They owned it until the 1960s. So they had it from like 1911 to 1960s. So they had it a long time. And we still have some of the, it's really cool. We have some of the annual uh, meeting notes and we have their their uh, financial logs from years way back when. And they sold to uh, some people. We, there's, a, there's a little bit of gray area and some of the, the lineage of the company then because it would be held for a couple of years and then sold and held for a couple of years and sold and held. It, that happened multiple times um, until up until... Um, uh, probably about the the early to mid nineties, and and then it's been one group had it. The guy passed away. Then the the people I got into business with, and then uh, have bought them out of the business since then. It's so interesting, and I think you find a, sort of a similar story with a lot of heritage brands in Minnesota, J W Hume and Faribault, and some of these, you know original, storied, historical brands that, you know, had their ups and downs, but somehow, you know, the brand and the product endured. How do you think it is that Duluth Pack survived all those decades and all the owners? I think, Allie, one of the things, and and we stick to it today, we get asked a lot about, why don't you bring your manufacturing elsewhere? You know, first people are like, why don't you just take it overseas? You'll make a lot of money. Are you crazy? I would destroy this awesome brand. Mm-hmm. I think all of these different brands had the same uh, core values, and that was, no, we make it here, and it doesn't mean we make it the absolute most efficient way, or we make it the cheapest way, or, you know, you can keep going on and on with all these, or this, or that. What we do is we stick to what works, and we and that, I think, with all of the companies you just named, is quality, mm-hmm. first and foremost. And there is a market out there of people who will pay their hard-earned money for what the value is of high-quality made-in-America goods. And as long as we stick to that, we don't have to be everything to everyone. Because I've always said, if you're trying to be everything to everyone, you're nothing to anyone, specifically your own brand and your customers who pay everyone's wages by, by you know spending their hard-earned money for your quality products. And so we stick to that. And we have four core values here now. And I think that literally, if you went back 100 years, you'd find that if you talk to the people, they would say, yeah, those values haven't changed. Maybe we didn't market them as heavily back then that those were our core values because times have changed now. But our four core values are very simple, and every employee in this company has to know them. And that is number one, quality. Number two, we're in, we make premium products. We're in the premium market. We don't apologize for being there. Number three, we make it in America. In fact, Folks, if you have one of our bags, there's three tags inside them. Look under the American flag, the person who made it. There's a tag and it says handcrafted by. They signed and dated it. That's our third core value. Our fourth core value is lifetime guarantee for all craftsmanship and hardware. And it's just kind of a circle. It makes a nice little circle. It's our core values. We do not vary from that. And it doesn't mean we're for everyone. If somebody's like, I don't care about made in America, I don't care about a lifetime guarantee, I just want a cheap bag. Awesome. They're a great person, we're great people. We're just not, they're not our customer and we're not a good fit for them. And we're comfortable with that. What I saw 
were all of those those intangibles, and that is this historic brand, this story, those core values that I just spoke about. Mm -hmm. And if we stick to that, we can fix all this broken inside stuff that just needs some management help and 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 uh, maybe some new equipment and and whatnot. We can fix all of that. So how did he fix it? More on that after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.platinumbankmn.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. Duluth Pack was on autopilot when Tom bought it. Here's how he set about reviving it and winning over the staff. The vast majority of the business was canoe packs for the Boundary Waters and Quetico, uh-huh. which is still, I mean, that's that's... That's kind of our history. It's, it's a big piece of our legacy. It was the vast majority of our business because that's all people talked about. That's all they touted. Right. right now, canoe packs, we make as many as we ever did every year, but it's one half of 1% of our business. Really? So when you listen to your customers saying, I buy all this other stuff, I would say our customers are the smartest people we know. And they'll tell you what they want and what they don't want. And they'll tell you with their pocketbooks. So what is it that, they, who are they? Are they hipsters? Um, in, in certain instances, yes. Yeah. I mean, we, but what I can tell you is we've done a lot of research over the years, Allie, and there's one core thing that every single customer of ours that we've been able to talk to has said. When they think of Duluth Pack, it invokes thoughts of being outdoors. And it doesn't matter if you live in Duluth, Minnesota, or you live somewhere out in the bush in Alaska, or you live in New York City, and your outdoors to you in New York City is Central Park. It doesn't matter. That feeling of being outdoors is a powerful feeling. And we know that because we've studied this. I mean, in nauseam, we've studied this. And our brand invokes outdoors, which is most people's happy places. I, I imagine that, I mean, it's got to be somewhat amusing to to see, you know, as the fashion trends come and go and how heritage brands, you know, came back into favor. And these brands that were really about utility suddenly, you know, were embraced by, you know, fashionistas and showing up on runways from red wing boots to, to your bags. That kind of gave a resurgence to a lot of these brands. That was sort of happening at the time that you started thinking about buying up Duluth Pack, wasn't it? It it was, um, and and we fell in that trap a little bit, and and you learn from it. It wasn't a bad thing that we fell in that trap, but you can chase a lot of things that are just going to be trends again, mm-hmm. and trends come and go. And what we knew is let's never fall in that trap. Well, we did a little bit. We spent a tremendous amount of resource and a lot of time being at, at uh, fashion shows in, in New York City mm. and trade shows in New York City and, and a lot in Chicago and a lot of other things. And, and it, it put us on the, you know, the stage places where we wanted to be. Mm-hmm. But so much of that and a lot of companies, I think, pushed all their chips in on, you know, when those trends come and go. And then it's like, oh, we didn't think ahead of it when that trend is gone. What do we do now? We thought ahead and said, we're never leaving these cores yeah. that we were in. We're going to go there because people are calling, but we're also going to listen to other markets. We're not putting, pushing all chips in. So when that one kind of backed off a little bit where it was, it was cool to have the old, you know, the old jeans and the old look and, and people were buying, you know, used leather jackets because it was, you know, grandpa stuff is cool, but dad stuff is not cool. And, and fashion, you know, the fashionistas were loving that and it came and it went, yeah. it'll come back again. You'll we'll sure. see that again, Ellie. But what we didn't do, and I think we were pretty smart about, we had a lot of conversations about is well, we're going to push some of the chips into that market, but we need to have our wi- eyes wide open that this could come and go pretty quickly. And I think it hung around a little longer than people thought it was going to, which that's great, yeah. but it, it kind of went and we'll see it come back again. 
and we just we we have so many verticals now that we sell into um that that if one is a little bit soft because it was a little bit more trendy it's not going to harm us mm-hmm. i'm curious what was the biggest surprise when when you got in there when you bought this company and there you are okay you love the brand now you own the brand you're running this company this was a very different kind of business than what you had been doing. What was the biggest surprise for you? I think how much trouble it was really in. Um, that's the rose-colored glasses part of it. That yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't the condition it was in. It was the time frame to fix it. Hmm. Um, you know, you come in and you're full of of energy and you're full of ideas and everything else and, and you have to turn a ship around and turn it a full 180 degrees and it doesn't happen overnight and and actually we i would say that our staff and it's 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 not about me this company's not about me i'm just a caretaker and a leader for a short time period in, in the history of this company and try to make it better every day than it was the day before and and um, so we have a great staff and the staff that jumped on board when I came in uh, really believed that this company could be something, too, and that it wasn't in the right direction and that if we all locked arms, we could get it in that right direction. And it happened, actually, I would say quicker than I thought initially, that all of a sudden it's like, wow, we're really stopping some of this bleeding. Then September 15th uh, of, of 2007 happened or 2008, excuse me. Um, and that's when the stock market crashed. Yeah. And people got scared. And so what did people do? They stopped buying things. Sure. And so we, we were looking to finish strong in 2008. And the fourth quarter of that year was an absolute disaster. And, uh, and unfortunately, because we had done so much good work in that first year and a quarter, roughly. And it's like, holy cow. We might get this thing in the black. Then September 15th of 2008 happened. 2009, I, per, I really tried to just wipe that year from the, my memory bank. Um, you know, I pushed all chips in, sold a ton of assets I had. Uh, you know, like a lot of entrepreneurs, you take, you know, oh, I got this great 401k in retirement and all this and convinced my wife it was a good investment. Let's uh, sell all that off and take our lumps and push it in. And we lost it all. Oh, wow. Lost it all. Um, and any, any entrepreneur that's ever been through it, most have, have been through a pretty tough time. 2009 was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. It got so horrible that uh, there was one day I literally had to call it into work that I can't make it because I do not have the money to put gas in my truck and my truck's empty. You're kidding. No. And, and and these stories are out there. I mean, every entrepreneur seems to have them in their back pocket somewhere. Um, and, you know, those are some of the best lessons you ever learn. I just literally, at, at that point, like, you know, 40-something years old, had to just start over from ground zero. Take the first 20 years of your life and everything that you had built up and nest eggs and all that and say, well, guess what? We got a clean slate here. What do we do now? Because we don't have any money. Um and, and start over. And, and thank goodness that things, uh, things started turning in 2010. Uh, in October of 2010, we put this company in the black and we have not looked back yet. And, and how did you do that so quickly? What was the key? To, I mean, was it just a matter of people getting back out there and getting back to, to spending money and recreating or, or, or what did you do? The, the first thing we had to do here was, it was there was no reason to add more revenue to, to the pot because we had so many broken systems internally that it was just leaking out. I always, the adage I use is why add more water to the bathtub if it has so many leaks and it fix the leaks first before you add more water. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we had to do is focus internally those first couple of years and say, how, how do we fix this? How do we stop leaks? What are the biggest leaks? And a lot of more easy. There was so much, there was so many things wrong that uh, there was a lot of low hanging fruit. And so we started picking those off and then, Obviously, the economy hurt us. So that's what we had fixed first with the low hanging and then the economy. And then once people said, okay, we're going to survive in 2010, as we kind of see this recession behind us, uh, people started buying again. And we were very poised to, to capitalize upon that with the improvements we had made. Do you feel like you were in, in some ways, I mean, when, when you were buying this company, 
were they able to sort of hide some of the, the, the facts from you? Did you not have the full picture on what was going on? No, I don't think it was it was hiding facts. It was, okay, this thing needs some massaging. It needs some work. And, and we'll get this. Mm-hmm. If the recession hadn't happened, within you know, 12, 14 months, we would have had this thing turned around where we would have had it in a good place. It was just that the recession happened. So now you got another 24 months on top of it. So you've been losing money, turning it around, getting to a good point. And then all of a sudden the recession happens and revenue streams stop. Got it. And so we had fixed a lot of the internal stuff, but the revenue stream stops when t- things got very, very difficult. And and then it's like, okay, what do we do now? You know, let's let's open up the playbook and and oh, son of a gun, that chapter's missing. And so you know, so many businesses saw that during the the Great Recession. A lot of people saw it during the pandemic the last couple of years, and we actually grew through it because I think we learned a lot of hard lessons. You know, you know, twelve years earlier. We said, okay, we know where not to go. Interesting. What would you say when you think back on that time? What were a, a couple of the the most key um, critical decisions that you made that really helped with the turnaround? One is uh, just be who you are. Stick to those core values and work hard every day. We're not going to add people. We're not going to put more infrastructure into this company unless it's absolutely necessary. We are not going to spend one red cent more than we have to from an expense standpoint because we don't have it. And so we were watching every single dollar mattered. And when you learn that lesson that every sale is just as important as the next sale, treat every sale as if it's your very first and you're all excited about it, or your very last that you've ever had and you're excited about that, treat every single customer and every sale like that. But you just have to roll up your sleeves and work hard. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're not willing to do that, then you know, owning your own business, small business, being an entrepreneur is definitely not the right field because you can't clock in and clock out as entrepreneurs. Right. You don't get to turn it off. We don't apologize for that. We Don't feel bad for us. We sign up for it. It is what it is. And uh, it's kind of, you know, a lot of us, that's what drives us. In 2017, you went out and bought another company. Yeah, you know, what some prompted people, that? Um, a weak moment. Um, I came up with a, you know, I'm a very, first of all, I'm, I'm a mechanical person. I always try to, you know, what's the next thing that you can make better? I had a great idea to take some of a whole bunch of camp saws that none of them were what I called perfect. And I'm a very much an outdoors person and I want to make the best camp saw there is out there. So I I approached this company and said, Hey, would you be interested in making these saws? I have some avenues and a lot of people I know that we could, we could sell them through, but I, I really don't want to make them. And so I approached a company, they made some prototypes with my ideas and the tweaks from all these other saws. And it was like, wow, we're, we're, we're getting somewhere here. And then I got approached back from them and they said, um, you know what, we're, we're struggling. Um, the founder of the company had passed away. The family tried to run it. Um, you know, the, the products they made were absolutely phenomenal, world-class in their, in their product lines. But the back end, the business side of it was a struggle for them. And they said, we're probably not going to survive. The business end of it's really tough for us. Why don't you just buy us? And I'm like, well... <laughs> that been here, done see, that. Let me, let me check my schedule. <laughs> um, that wasn't on the schedule this day, week, month, or year. Mm-hmm. And they're like, seriously, um, come on and you know look at things. So I said, Would you be willing to open? We signed an NDA. Would you open your books to us? And, and I already knew their product line. It's named Spring Creek Manufacturing. Um, they make paddle sports accessories out of anodized aluminum, car racks, truck racks for canoes and kayaks, and then. Since we took it over, we made a whole industrial division to make just industrial truck racks. They're all made out of anodized aluminum. They're absolute best in class in every product line we're in. They're made in Mountain Iron, Minnesota. And my son was graduating college at the time, and he's, he's pretty mechanical. He got a business degree, and I said, uh, yeah, you want a job? And he's like, that company you've been talking about? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well is it a job or, you know, do I get to have some ownership or how does this work out? 
And uh, on July 1st of 2017, my son and I became business partners and he runs the company. It was another one that was struggling and wouldn't have survived. Uh, my wife said, that's it. You can't do that anymore. You're getting too old for that. And uh, this, this turnaround thing. Um, and my son has done all the heavy lifting and has turned it around. It's, uh, it'll, by the end of this year, our goal would be to be 5X what it was five years ago. Um, and we're, we're well on the path to do that. So we turned it around and have just been in growth mode on some awesome products that are once again made in America. What fascinates me, it, it takes a very specific kind of personality and confidence to say, to, to see that a company is struggling. They're literally telling you, we're not going to be in business long enough to make the thing that you want. And then you say, okay, great, I'll buy it. What did you see? What gives you the confidence that you could do something that the previous ownership hasn't been able to do? Well, first of all, it's not that I'm smarter than anyone else. I promise you that. Um, it's number one product. If you have a world-class product, and I don't care what it is, and you believe in it that much, then a lot of hard work, and I've said that many times, can take that wonderful product. There's people out there looking for those products. They just don't know you exist. And you have to figure out how to get those products in front of the right people who want your product. And I think I have, you know, a part of it is I have some wisdom now through making a lot of mistakes. And I have some knowledge base on, on how to fix some things because I've done it before whether it was in the income property business, you bought a distressed property that there's no way it's going to make money or Duluth Pack and how we turned it around and then do that. You learn a lot of lessons from those things. And it's like, okay, we know not, we know what not to do. And not that every move is going to be correct, but you also have to have enough, enough trust in yourself and that the processes through hard work will work themselves out. And you can't go in and, and I've, I've been, guilty of it with rose-colored glasses that you can do it overnight. It's a process. It's a long process. Not everyone has a stomach to stomach. Um, you know, when you buy a distressed company, it's going to lose money for a while. You have to stop the downhill slide before you level the, sl the, the slide off before you can even think about building back and now all of a sudden becoming profitable. Yeah. And so there's, there's nothing that you don't touch at that point. You need to be willing you can't just point and tell other people to do things. You, you can't ever have anyone do anything that you're not willing to do yourself as a leader. I'm also curious, you're talking about two companies in a town where I think there's probably a lot of legacy, a lot of history, a lot of people who've been there for life. Probably you, you have employees who've been at these companies longer than you have, I'm going to guess. Absolutely. Both companies. What is that like as, as a leader? How do, you, how do you win their trust? How do you get them to listen to you when they've been there longer than you? Not everyone is going to, Allie. That's a great question. That is a fabulous question. The way I look at it is I said, listen, I'm just another guy. I'm just a guy who just spent a lot of money on this company because I believe in this company. And I also believe it is going in the wrong direction. So we're going to change direction. And each and every person is valuable to the organization, and you are all welcome on the ship. But the ship is leaving dock, and it's changing course. Okay. And whether you like it or not, I am the new sheriff in town, and you're not going to – I'm not asking you to agree with every decision we make, but I am asking you to support it. Hmm. You will all have a great career. You'll all have great jobs if you're willing to do that. If you want to fight it, your career is going to be very short. Sorry, let's just be honest with one another. Because if we keep doing, you know, they they say if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over and expect different results, that's the definition of insanity. Well, if a company's failing and you think you're going to do the same things and fix it, well, that's not the most intelligent thing we can do. We are going to change a lot of things. And a lot of things you may not agree with, but maybe I've done them before. Maybe I've seen them before and and they work. And so that's what we do. But then we also instill in everyone that you are an important part of this cog because without you, we can't do these things. It's just from a leadership and a directional standpoint, a lot of things are going to change. Yeah, that, that seems like a tricky balance to, to strike. To you you got to win these people over. And I imagine that there was some institutional knowledge that you benefited from and needed. 
along yes, the way. Yes, but we, you know, there's always people who are going to say, "Oh, you know what? I'm I'm more important than the organization, and without me, you can't survive." Well, mm-hmm. son of a gun, we've had several of those people up and leave and walk out the door, and and you know, say kind things to you on the way out the door, and uh, and guess what? We survived. Hmm. Um, none of us, me included, is bigger than the organization. In fact, as a leader of the company. I should be able to get hit by a bus today and both companies continue to grow. The vision is in place. The next several years are laid out and nothing happens because I got run over by a bus. Not that I'm looking to have that happen, but I think proper leadership is if you are not present, the organization continues on because you've led people to make proper decisions. Yeah, yeah. What would you say is um, key to running a successful American manufacturing operation? today. So much talk about things overseas and where we're producing things. I think people care today, which you have that going for you, but what's the key to being successful? Easy. Integrity. Do not compromise your integrity as a person and or a company. Don't try to be everything to everyone. I mentioned that earlier. Um, It's so easy to want to chase shiny things, you know, and bright lights and things like that. You can't. You have to you have to will yourself not to chase the the trend or the shiny light and just stick to who you are, what you are, and then back it up with why you are who you are as a company, not a person. But the person has to have that integrity as well. And so that's what it really comes down to is that integrity. You you mentioned the pandemic a little earlier, and I know it's actually been a, a good period for you. And I imagine so many people going outside and, and doing even more recreating, which fits in line perfectly with your products. I don't know if that was it or if you think it's something else. I'm curious about that. And then also supply chain has been such a, a struggle. Have you encountered issues or not because you do your own manufacturing? Um. So first, let me go back to the pandemic. Um, unfortunately, both companies uh, were not deemed to be uh, essential. Um, and so we were we were lucky enough to have the governor say, well, you're not important enough to stay open, so we'll lay everybody off. And unfortunately, we laid off, um, I believe, close to 90 people at Duluth Pack and, and 100% of the small staff up at, at Spring Creek Manufacturing. And um, I can tell you in my almost 40-year career, that day was my single most horrible because I had zero control. Yeah, I had zero control over it. It was being shoved down our throats. I wanted to buck it. I wanted to say, screw you. We're staying open. Find me. These are great people because you got to think about it. All the people that got laid off, they had nothing to do with them. They still had car payments and house payments and rent and food to put on the table, kids to send, send to school and all these other things. Great people. And guess what? I got to tell them tomorrow you're laid off because somebody deemed our company not important enough. And, and you couldn't take, afford to, to keep them on and, and stop production no, for a time. No. You know, at Duluth Pack, what, the thing we did do was um, we, we still paid all their health care. And their benefits. Uh, we just decided we owe that to these people, and we didn't know how long or short it would be. So, you know, went a lot of sleepless nights. I can tell you, Allie, that uh, at my age, I do not have another pandemic in me. Um, it'll kill me. Um, I didn't sleep because I owe it to these awesome people at both companies that I've got to do whatever is in my power to get them back as fast as I can get them back. Luckily, I'm old. Luckily, I have a lot of contacts and relationships out there, and, and several of us made a lot of phone calls, and somebody had expertise in one area. I had some in another. I had capacity in production. Somebody else had supply chain expertise and could get their hands on some of this, that, and the other thing. And a bunch of us together put our heads together and secured a bunch of um, uh, making medical gown business. And within two weeks to the day of laying everyone off, we had 100% of our employees back at Duluth Pack making medical gowns, which then deemed us essential. The feel-good part was awesome. I I promise you that, that we were, you know, for the greater good, we were doing a lot of really great things. But I'll say selfishly that I owed it to our employees to do whatever it took to get them back because these are great people. And I can honestly tell you in almost 40 years of business, it's the only standing ovation I've ever gotten. I probably get a lot of knives in the back when I turn around. But, uh, 
but it was the only standing ovation that I've ever received. And that is when we fired back up that first morning, everyone stood up and clapped. Amazing. So how's business today? Would you say you're you're back to, to where you would have been had there been no pandemic? Are you ahead of where you thought you'd be? What What's different today? You know, both Duluth Pack and Spring Creek, it's off the rails right now. We can't, we literally can't make it fast enough at both companies. What do you Made make America, of that? Um, I make a couple things. First of all, um, people finally said, enough's enough. I'm done buying cheap garbage. Hmm. Number two is when it's coming from some other country, for for the last couple of years, uh, things are stuck on a ship forever. Yeah. Well, we don't have all those issues because we're making it here. We're, we're getting a lot of, uh, you know, we have to source our materials here. And so, yes, yeah, some of our lead times went way up because everyone got tipped upside down. But we've we've worked our way through a lot of that. And our our biggest thing is, you know, is it a problem? Uh, sure. But I'll take these problems all day. And we have demand problems at both companies that that we're having a hard time keeping up with the demand of high quality made in America products and people not wanting to go back to work because the government's paying them a whole bunch to sit at home with their feet up. And uh, it's very frustrating because we've been trying to hire, trying to hire, trying to hire at both companies. And um, it's it's a struggle. Any business owner will tell you that. Any manager of business will tell you it's a struggle to hire right now. And uh, unfortunately, through the pandemic, uh, I'm just an honest person. It's made a lot of lazy people out there mm-hmm. who don't want to go to work and hustle every day and, and uh, feel good about themselves and what they do. And so any of those people who are wanting to do that, we're hiring and we will train you. You mentioned early on that one of your goals was making sure that everybody knew about Duluth Pack way beyond Duluth. I think there certainly are brand fans all over the country. You only have one store, though. Why not open stores everywhere? Do you do you feel like you've achieved what you wanted as far as brand notoriety? Oh, heck no. Uh, not even close. We we think maybe we're finding the tip of the iceberg to uh, to actually find the iceberg. Uh, we have one sh- store, retail store. It's our flagship store. We had looked years ago at, you know, maybe should we go to the Twin Cities? Should we go to Chicago, Denver, Des Moines, um, Indianapolis, uh, you know, Detroit, and open up a store, um, another store, and maybe cookie cutter them and do that. And and at the time, we didn't have the capital to make that happen. And we said, what's the next best thing? And that was get a dealer network out there and let others do our selling of our brand and use rep groups to to build that dealer network. And that's what we, we went into. We pushed our chips in. It's It's been successful. And we have, uh, you know, lots and lots of other stores, small. We don't go into the big box and things like that. We don't have to be everything to everyone. So let's stick to who we are and build it organically. So we have we have dealers all over the world. We have uh, distribution in Japan and, and uh, in Germany. And, and so we're in Europe and, and it's, you know, it's all good. It just keeps growing. And we just keep shouting. And our marketing team is very strong. They've made, they built a brand for us that's actually a lot bigger than what our company is. And that's a great thing when your brand is actually bigger than your company. That's amazing. You've had a lot of success. You've had ups and downs. You've put in a lot of hard work and probably at some points harder than you had ever anticipated. Um, when you think about this chapter of your business story, would you do it any differently if you had it to do over again? Well, I'd prefer not to lose as much money as I did early <laughs> on, Allie. <laughs> I saw I said that, you know, gosh, when, when I retire, I think I'm going to make money off a book. It's going to be all the reasons, all the ways that you can lose money because I've done it. I've done them all. <laughs> um, and, um, but, uh, you know, sure, there's many, many things that you would do differently. But we do those differently today to make us successful as we go because we made a lot of mistakes. And and when you make those mistakes, the one thing is we're humans and we're going to make mistakes, but we have to learn from them. We can't continue to make the same mistakes over again. So th- that's one of the things is the biggest lessons. Would I do things different? Um, yes. Would I do it again? Absolutely. Um, but I would do a lot of the, 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 the things along the way differently. Um, especially the things that didn't work and you know the things that did work um we would have probably done a lot of those differently too you know there's there's a lot of markets that we just thought it would be such a great market so you push it push it push it trying to shove it down people's throat and i always say 
you know, dog's a dog's a dog. It's always going to be a dog. Quit throwing money at it. Quit putting resources into it. You're never going to make it because you like it. You're never going to make it a great product. So just make one for yourself, Tom, and uh, quit pushing it on everybody else. And, you know, there's a lot of things we've done like that. So even in the, the, the mistakes we've made, well, those are easy. Don't do them again, right? And what went wrong and analyze that. But the things that went right, how could we have done them more rapidly? How could we have done them better? How could we have been done them more efficiently? And the ones that were good ideas, but probably weren't, the market wasn't ready for them. Uh, we had to stop pushing them as hard as we did and, and, you know, really spending money and putting resources into certain things. Are there a lot of things on your business to-do list? I mean, are, are, are you, do, do you still feel motivated that there are th- certain things you haven't achieved yet that are important to you or could you retire tomorrow? I can tell you I could, for, I mean, could I walk away from these companies tomorrow? I could. I could because I know they're, they're in good hands. And, and that's very comforting. Um, we have really strong teams today. Do I want to? No, because I'm a very motivated person. And I'd, after about a week, my wife would say, could you please go back to work? You're driving <laughs> me crazy. Um, no, I have a lot of bucket list things. And, and actually, I've, I've been very blessed. I've done most of my bucket list things. And, and the rest of my life really needs to be to, to work on my wife's bucket list things with her. And, and I want to definitely take more time to to be there with my wife she supported all this and and uh, make sure that we do the things she wants to accomplish in life and so will i the rest of my career work less heck yeah i'm gonna work less um but am i ready to just peel back tomorrow and say i'm done Um, i think that would be pretty darn tough um to do that but i have i'm surrounded by such great people today that they just make it happen, and, uh, and and it's really fun. It's fun to watch and answer questions and, and assist and knock down hurdles for them when, when they feel like they need a hurdle knockdown. But other than that, um, it's, gosh, they know what, what they do. They know how to do it. They know how to do it a lot better than I do, and just hold them accountable. And um, I have a great team that, you know, today's society, people don't want to be held accountable, it sh- certainly seems, in a lot of realms. Um, I have a great staff that they're like, no, I'm okay being held accountable because I signed up for this. And that's my job is, is the accountability part, making sure people are going to be held accountable. And man, they're they're smart and motivated and, and they believe in what we're doing at both companies and just making it happen. Yeah. Well, it's a great story. It's a great product. And you are carrying on a true legacy. So congrats on all the success. And thanks for thanks for sharing the story with us. It's really fun. Well, to- thanks. Thanks for having me, Allie. This has been really fun. And, you know, you and I have known each other a long time. And hopefully people, you know, hear it and enjoy that hey, there are entrepreneurs out there and or they're thinking about being an entrepreneur and they can say, you know what? All right. It's I guess it is scary at times, but you know what? Waiting any longer doesn't really fix the, the fear of doing it. And sometimes you just have to go for it um, and, and, and just People, the biggest lesson I could ever give to people, I'm a keynote speaker at a graduation coming up, and it's all around hard work. Mm-hmm. That's one thing people can do every day is outwork their competition. And if you're willing to do that every day without complaining, and I'm not just talking the first year, and then you, you want to be president of the company, your whole career, you just need to work hard. Yeah. And if you do that, you don't have to be the brightest person in the world. You don't have to have all the answers. You'll learn as you go, but you can control one thing, and that's attitude and how hard you work. Just go out work everyone. You'll go blowing past 90% of people if you're willing to do that your whole career. My wife jokes, and she said, you know, Tom, if you retired right now, I'm in my you know late 50s. You retired right now. You still work you know, more hours than most people if they work till they're 70. You know, you're probably right. <laughs> well, maybe you should stop working in the store on the weekends. I mean, at least take the Saturdays off, right, Tom? Yeah. You know what? We've got a great staff there. They, they truly do. They really They'll don't kick you me. out. In fact, right. it's, I think it's more like, Tom, why don't you leave? <laughs> hit, hit the lake. Hit the lake. Well, thank you, Tom. Great advice. Really, it's great advice, and it is, uh, it's a fantastic brand. I know my uh, my trusty orange backpack attests to that. Lifetime guarantee. Thanks, Allie. We appreciate you. Thanks, as always. Great chatting with you. 
I can say is next time you're up in Duluth, hit Canal Park and be sure to stop by the Duluth Pack store. I think you'll see it in a different light after hearing Tom's amazing story and the history of this brand. And the store is really fun to shop. Well, let's put some perspective on everything we just heard about leadership, about transition, about reviving a a troubled company. Let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Chad Brinsfield is an associate professor of management. Professor Brinsfield, what did you think of the Duluth Pack story? I love that story. I I listened to it uh, one and a half times. (laughs) I I didn't hear it completely the second time, but... uh, I just found it fascinating. What it was like a fun story to listen to to learn about that company and, and it's a, what was it 140 years old? I yes. mean, it's amazing the founder's story and and how it progressed and lived through so many tough times and and then Tom taking it over and what he's been able to do with it and the tough times that he has faced. It, it was just a really interesting story. So I, I loved it. It's a unique situation, of course. Most of us in business are not going to have the opportunity to buy a, a heritage brand the way he did, but I think. A lot of us are in the position of coming in new to a place where a lot of people have been there or trying to turn something around. What were some of your big takeaways? I know his his values really stood out to you. Yeah. I mean, of all the things that we talked about or he talked about, uh, values probably stuck out to me more than anything else. And uh, we make a distinction, perhaps, uh, you know, your your personal values, understanding what those are, I think is is really critical. That's something for healthy psychological functioning that's that's good for all people to, you know, to work on and, and to think about. And I'm a big fan of uh, being explicit about that and, and writing things like that down and saying, you know, wh- who am I? What What's important to me? What are my priorities? So from a personal standpoint, you know, he didn't talk about that necessarily, but it seems like he's pretty solid where that's concerned. And then he talked about the values of the company and, and how important those are and um, how um, how the employees all understand what those values are. You know, I teach students at a lot of major corporations around town and oftentimes there'll be multiple students from one company in the classroom. And we'll talk about values and, and oftentimes the students don't, or the employees of those companies don't have a clear understanding of what the values are of that company. So I think having that clarity is important. And then mm-hmm. there's a there's a saying uh, by Ralph Waldo Emerson, what you do speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you say. And I always love that when hmm. it seems about values, because a lot of companies, too, will espouse certain types of values, but then what they do says something different. And I think having that behavioral integrity between this is what I say I stand for and this is what we do. And and it's important to create that kind of um, consistency and cohesion for people that, you know, we say we stand for this. And then when we operate, we do things that are consistent with that. We hire in a way uh, that's consistent with that. We reward employees in a way that is consistent with that. Mm -hmm. We uh, make decisions about layoffs in a way that's consistent with that. We don't go chasing after every profit opportunity that might undercut some of what those values are. He talked about that too with them potentially shipping, you know, manufacturing overseas. He could maybe make more money, but that would dilute the perceived brand and the quality. So I think, you know, holding steady to those values is critical. And it's critical that uh, not only he has those values, that the employees understand what those are, but all the managers all the way down the line, um, you know, understand those and exemplify those. Because when you don't have consistency and clarity along those lines, then, uh, you know, internal politics you know, starts to get involved and people have difference of opinions and, and want to go in different directions. And sure, that sure. creates a lot of confusion. So makes it easier to make the tough decisions when there's that consistency and everybody knows what the values are. So they can't be surprised, even if it's not a, a favorable or popular decision. They know what's coming and they know that it's consistent with the brand. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, He he did an excellent job where that was concerned, I felt. Yeah, he certainly does. Now, the the one place where he actually um, kind of critiques himself is coming in with rose-colored glasses. There is an element of emotion in coming in and buying a brand that you love that maybe isn't in as good a shape as you thought it was. Yeah, for sure. And I, I like it when uh, the psychological research that I study corresponds to what we intuitively know, just kind of like give some veracity to what, what our intuition is. And the intuition about rose-colored glasses is, yeah, you know, my, my emotions can color what I'm, uh, how I'm perceiving things. And there's a term called motivated cognition. There's a lot of research done in this area, and it is that our motives do influence our thinking, our cognition. And so, uh, you know, if I want something to be true, if I'm emotionally attached to a particular type of outcome, then I'm going to perceive 
information in a way that corresponds to that. So, yeah, that that's for sure happening. So is that just a cautionary tale for anyone looking to buy a business? Well, you know, I, it's kind of you know, one of the things I think that he exemplified that's related to that was a combination of confidence and humility. And, mm. you know, those aren't those aren't on opposite ends of a continuum. You can have confidence and humility. And I felt like he had that. Sure. The real yeah. question now is, Chad, are, are you going to go buy a Duluth pack? <laughs> uh, I think there's probably a good probability of that. You know, it's I, I'm going to make the trip up to Duluth to go to the store. So if I'm going to make that commitment, I'll probably come home with something. Well, think about how much meaning it will have now that you've had this whole experience. Thank you for, for putting yeah. everything in perspective and, and giving us some, some great takeaways to think about from this story. My pleasure. Chad Brinsfield, Associate Professor of Management. Thank you, Chad. And thank you to our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of business. For more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. You'll find past episodes, lots of great lessons from entrepreneurs and our professors at St. Thomas. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business, and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. <laughs>